0: I'm pretty sure that most people in the country at this stage have either watched one of the two documentaries. One is on Sky Atlantic or Now TV, and that, of course, is Jim Sheridan's documentary, A Murder at the Cottage. The other one, of course, is Sophie, A Murder in West Cork, uh, which was produced and is on Netflix. And both of them are very good documentaries. I haven't watched the whole of the Jim Sheridan one yet. I've cut. I just missed the end of it, but I've watched the whole Netflix one. Um, that's just the order I chose to watch them in. Um, they are very similar. They both seem to be very good, but they both come from two very different angles. And I could say, you could probably say they both have a bias. Uh, one would be against Dean Bailey and the other one leaves a question mark over the whole case. And of course, this is the case of the death of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier, who was found dead on December the 23rd, 1996. Her body was found close to her holiday home in skull, uh, by her neighbor, Shirley Foster. The man who has been the suspect in this particular case for the last 25 years and claims his life has been ruined is Ian Bailey. And Ian joins me on the phone this evening. Good afternoon, Ian.
1: Um, Well, good evening, I think
0: it is, isn't it? Well, good evening. It is good evening. You are. I start to lose track of time, to be honest with with you. (laughs) Ian, I mean, firstly, let me get to last week in the news. The big story was, of course, that you had threatened to sue Netflix.
1: No, Uh, No, no, no. To be absolutely correct, I hadn't threatened to sue them. I was merely asking them to um, retract a, an interview they did with me, but
0: anyway. And, and, fa- I, and thinking, failing that, which they did, they actually did obviously use that part of yeah. the interview. Will you be continue uh, litigation against them?
1: Well, I haven't even started litigation against them, to be precise, but um, that's a matter to be decided at a point in the future by my legal OK, and and the
0: reason for that, you give the impression that maybe you were, well, I suggest, duped into that because the interview that you did wasn't, in fact, for the documentary, but because, obviously, you were cooperating with Jim Sheridan. Um, it was, obviously, that this particular interview that you did for Netflix, you didn't believe was going into that documentary. Maybe you could clarify exactly what happened there.
1: Well, what happened was I was approached by Jennifer Ford and Sam Bungie, who'd made the, um, the podcast um, series, and I was um, led to believe that they wanted an interview to do what they call in the business a tease for a Netflix um, pitch. And I I gave them an interview uh, on the basis it was going to be used as a tease. Um, Mm -hmm. And then subsequently I find out that it's it's going to be in the documentary. Okay.
0: And, and obviously you asked them to remove it from the documentary, which they refused to do, and they, and they ran the interviews as part of the whole yeah, documentary yeah, series. Yeah. Firstly, before we go, I'm going to go back a little bit in time shortly, but before we do that, in relation to the two documentaries, I'm assuming you've watched both of them.
1: Um, well, you, your assumption would be incorrect. Um, I watched the first two episodes of the what I call the Jim doc, um, the Jim Sheridan documentary about, was it two weeks ago? This when is it was this one entitled like,
0: A Murder at the Cottage, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I watched the first two episodes on a Sunday night in the company of uh, Jules' uh, um, grandson. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, yeah, so I've watched the, the first two episodes of the Jim doc.
0: Okay, and the the Netflix one?
1: I haven't um, watched it. I've been made aware of certain sequences in it.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, in relation to the Netflix one first, we do, we'll come to that first. I'll come to Jim Sheridan's mm. one in a few minutes. Mm. I mean, if I asked you to describe yourself, Ian, what sort of person would you say you were? <laughs> I, mean, I, know. I, mean, I'm, I mean, I know it's, I know it's an unusual oh, okay. question, but I mean, okay. because... And I'll tell you why I asked this, because I think after both documentaries probably more so than the Netflix. one. There's a perception of the type of person that you are. So what sort of person do you believe you are?
1: Well, I don't know about the perception that the programs give me, but well, what sort of person do I think I am? Well, I'm a male, I'm white, I'm, uh, you know, a human being. Um, would, that's, you, that's would you a, consider
0: a, yourself eccentric? <laughs>
1: <No>. <laughs> Good I mean, I'm no, being serious. Not Niall, Niall. I asked a friend the other day about what eccentricity was. Uh, and I think eccentricity is um, a phrase which is used by people who are not necessarily colourful and outgoing, about people who are maybe a little bit quirky. outgoing. Quirky. Would that uh, be yeah, a good? maybe qu- Maybe quirky, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay.
0: Because obviously in the Netflix documentary, they show you talking about your plants and you're talking about the bee maybe you pointed to the bee and it shows you walking up Sorry, and down the pointed road. pointed to the... A bee, a bee on a plant, oh, yeah. yeah. And it shows you walking up the road with your with your stick. I mean, it comes across that you would be a little bit quirky, I, I suppose. That was probably the impression that most people would get. That you would no. be an unusual sort of person.
1: Um, I don't know about that. Yeah, well, okay.
0: But okay, but let me go back if I can. I mean, you were a journalist. Little did you know, you know, when you reached the age of 57, same age as me, by the way, that you would be at the center of probably the biggest murder investigation in Irish history.
1: Well, actually, I was 39 when it... I was 39 Mm. in 1990... uh, 1996, and Mm. in 1997, I was 40. Yep. And I, I... You know, I was a journalist with a very good, approvable track record, and all of a sudden, I became the subject of the news, and one of the things is as a, a, and you're a newsman as well, and if if maybe you became in the spotlight, as soon as you become in the spotlight, you you cease to be a journalist. You become the object of journalism. And, uh, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know, and that was 25 years ago.
0: So let's look at the point where you believe you became in the spotlight. I mean, you moved to Ireland as a journalist. You would have been the local journalist, obviously. I I, I moved
1: to Ireland in 1991, Mm -hmm. and I was a journalist in London and, and the UK.
0: In Cheltenham, uh, yep.
1: In Cheltenham and Gloucestershire and London. And then I moved here and I contacted various newspapers and I was corresponding writing stories for the, uh, oh, the, 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 the paper, as they used to call it, the Corky And why,
0: why did you move in? Because I suppose nowadays it wouldn't matter because a journalist can work from anywhere in the world. But at the time in the old days of the typewriter, et cetera, et cetera, it wouldn't have been quite as easy. So why, why move to Ireland when you had a wonderful metropolitan country like a, the UK, which had a much bigger media industry than Ireland, to a small little town in West Cork? What was the reason to want to move? Peace and quiet. Well, I,
1: I came to Ireland because most of my friends in London at the time, but coincidentally, just happened to be Irish. I had a lot of Irish connections. And um, I, I, I was actually got, you know how hard you fight to get on the roundabout and the rat race? mm and I'd worked in Fleet Street and I'd worked for the BBC and I'd worked for the Sunday Times and uh, and the News of the World and various papers but I I just became t- after I don't know 20 years of doing it as a freelance journalist where you never have a day off you know it's 7 days a week chasing um, the chasing
0: the stories of course yeah
1: yeah yeah and, and then commissions coming in you never have a moment's peace and at that time News was becoming a lot more frivolous. Rupert Murdoch could come in, and news was ceasing to be something about uh, something serious and becoming a lot more frivolous. And I'd always liked writing. I mean, from a very early age, I was that, that was the thing I did. I wrote and was good at English and poetry and things. And I had contacts here, and I decided I went back. I came over here but first in 1986. I came over. Several times after, and I uh, um, thought, actually, I'm, I'm I'm tired of this. I want a sort of different sort of life.
0: And it certainly is. It couldn't be further from what you were doing. I mean, yeah. school certainly is probably one of the quietest places in Ireland. So wonderful place for peace and quiet. You had obviously Jules's studio where you could sit and type away to your heart's content.
1: And well, yes, I mean, I first first of all, I came here and I was I spent some time in Crookhaven, and then I had friends in Ireland. I worked on a farm in, in County Waterford for the Shanahan's of Kilmac Thomas um, and did various jobs. And all the time I was writing either articles for newspapers or poetry.
0: And since then, by the way, you've written a few books on poetry. I'll come to that in a few minutes as well.
2: Yeah, but yeah. but
0: let, let me get to, to just before December the 23rd. I yeah. mean... Did you or had you? You claimed in the documentary, but certainly in the Netflix documentary and, and also else in the Jim Sheridan documentary, that you didn't know Sophie Tuscan de Plantier, that no, you, you knew she was, was living good. there, but you, yeah. you had never met her.
1: No, I didn't know her. I hadn't been introduced to her. I'd worked for her ne- a neighbour of hers uh, uh, doing gardening work. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, di- I didn't. I- All I knew was that there was Alf Lyons, who's now passed away, God bless him, hired me to do some gardening work because his partner, Shelley Foster, was retiring as a teacher in London and coming over. And he wanted to have his garden around the cottage where they lived, looking a little bit nice and tidied up. and I Okay. And that, that,
0: and up. just for, as the crow flies, probably about two or 300 yards from where Sophie Tuscan de Plantier was staying.
1: Yeah, maybe two, three, yeah. Something yeah. okay like
0: and I, I, in that time did you see her did you did you give her a wave did you ever see her no
1: no no i i i remember walking down from the house one day in april of 1995 as far as i recall the sheep were in the field and i saw somebody in the house as i came down past it and there were two young lads playing or actually chasing after sheep in in the field and uh But did did Alf
0: Lyons not say on the Jim Sheridan documentary that he did introduce it to Sophie?
1: I I believe that he did say that, but that was uh, an untruth. It wasn't the fact.
0: I mean, is it possible, because it is a long time ago now, Ian, and and I'm sure you've gone through the story so many times because, of Mm -hmm. course, this has been in the news for 25 years. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that maybe you just don't remember meeting her?
1: No, absolutely, I remember. I've got... uh... What they call a pretty well total recall mm.
2: um
1: and um no, I was never introduced to her, okay, now I mean I don't want you know Alf Lyons had issues to do with matters that the guards had been involved in, and the statement that he gave saying that he had introduced me to her was given, I think in oh maybe March of nineteen ninety seven um, no, it, it never. Happened. And you you don't believe that was true. Okay, okay. Well, I I, I don't believe it's. But well, you, you know, as far no, as you're I,
0: concerned, it, it's, it's not true. I
1: I, I, know it, 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 it's a, I don't think I know it, it wasn't, wasn't true.
0: true. Okay, so on the morning of the murder, and that very mm-hmm. sad morning where this young woman who had came to Ireland
1: Monday the you you'll never. For, I'm
0: sure you'll never forget it as long as the day you live. No. Okay, so on the morning, what was the, first, what was the first moment that you heard that somebody had been murdered? Was it when well, you...
1: Well, I, I had a phone call from um, a journalist from the paper, the Irish examiner, called Eddie Cassidy, who knew me as the local correspondent or stringer, as yeah. we used to be called, at around about 22, um, 20 to 2, on, on, in the afternoon of that, that day.
0: OK, and what, what about the suggestion that has been made in the Netflix documentaries that you had been in town that morning and had said to a couple of people before the time, and this is in the timeline that they portrayed, mm-hmm. before you spoke to Eddie Cassidy, that you had said to some people that you had to go and investigate a murder?
1: Well, one, I wasn't in Scotland in the early morning, and two, the suggestion that I had said that is a total load of... Um, you've got listeners, so I'll be polite. Nonsense.
0: So you never said that to anybody before you spoke to Eddie. So the first no. time that you uttered those no. words was after you spoke to Eddie, as far as you're concerned. And did, did Eddie tell you that it was a French tourist or a French national, he, he did. or did
1: well, he... Ed, Ed, Eddie rang me uh, at around about 22 and gave me basic information that a body had been found, foreign, possibly French, at, at a place called Tormor, And he asked me as a correspondent to go out to make inquiries. Now, I stayed at home that morning until all afternoon. I thought, well, I'll wait until the two o'clock news to see if there's any report of, of it on the news. And there was. I think it was on County Sound and it was reported
0: and why why wouldn't you go? I mean, obviously, you were a go-getter, you were a journalist. Why would you wait till the two o'clock news? If you were a go-getter, journalist, surely you'd be out there. Literally, it was well, only up the why, road.
1: Why, why would they, I'll throw the question back at you. Why wouldn't I wait to hear the news to see if there was something on the news? Well, I,
0: if I got a good tip-off from a journalist, I think I'd want to get out there and try and get the story before everybody else, if I was in your well, position.
1: Well, I, I, I subsequently did, having heard the news. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and when you went out to the scene, I'm assuming the guardie were there at that stage and preserving were, the scene. They
1: were, and I, I, I was with uh, Jules, and uh, I, actually Jules was going off to do something else, and I said, "Actually, you better come, come with me, bring your camera." Um, and I drove towards um, Tormore and Dunan, and I met Shirley Lyons at a junction on a lane. Uh, and she was driving, uh, like, towards Skull. She was driving, shall we say, east, mm-hmm. from west to east. And I knew her. And I wound the window down and I said, have you seen any, anything, any Garda activity? And she said, yes, I have. They're down the lane. What, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm here for the Cork Examiner. So she drove west, uh, or east to Skull and I drove west along the boreen to a point. Where the car was pulled off, and you could see from the, it was on slightly higher ground. I could see in the distance uh, quite a large number of people. I could recognize them as guards, blue uniforms. Mm -hmm. And then I started to walk towards the scene. And uh, as I walked, two guards walked towards me. And we met, I guess, halfway between where the car was parked and the house. And I asked them, they were called Malone and uh, Billy Burns.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, Billy
1: Burns is now passed, Malone is still alive. And I walked down and I said to them, I, I had a press pass, I showed them my press pass and I said, I'm here on behalf of the examiner. Is, is there any information coming? Uh, can you tell me anything? And they said, no, all information has to Go come from the press office, the, the Garda Sheikana press office. Yeah. Okay. So, then, so,
0: so you would, at that stage you had no information apart from the fact that a lady had no, been found.
1: No, uh, no and, and been... And it, was, it was quite clear that there was an incident because of the Garda
0: um, presence. Were you sure at that stage? Well, probably from what you'd heard on the news, and obviously from what you could gather from the scene, that it wasn't just somebody who had passed away; that it was a murder, and there was suspicious I, really, circumstances. I
1: didn't know. I really yeah. didn't know. All I was aware of was. Something had happened. There was a guard of presence. And then from there, so the, the uh, Billy Burns and Officer um, mm-hmm. um, Malone, um, uh, sorry, I, I, I retreated, as it were, from the spot and then yeah. went back to the car and drove down to the post office in Tormore, which is no longer in existence. And I spoke to the postmistress, Nan German, God bless her, she's passed, and asked, you, you see, as a journalist, you you go to the post office or if you see a postman, for instance, you know, yeah. you laugh because they tend to know.
0: Yeah, well, anybody who might... Well, people who get to talk to more people than than any, the average person, I suppose. Yeah. So, So moving forward from that... I mean, obviously it became all over the papers and one of the local journalists from France who had come over and obviously sought you out because I imagine any journalist that came into school if they could even find school to be honest because it's such a difficult house to find
1: yeah. would have sought you out because you're yeah. the local well, journalist. I, I, yeah, no, I was known as a local correspondent yeah. and as you know, you go to the, the local guy. Yeah. Uh, as we would yeah. in
0: radio, we'd ring up the local radio station, you know, to get the information or get a reporter on the scene.
1: <laughs> but what yeah. they
0: their argument was and obviously, who, who, this is,
1: Sorry, who's argument? Well, I,
0: I know the, the news reporter from RT News, uh, not RT, RT News in France, said that when he met up with you, you know, that you seem to have a lot of information. And I know there was one oh, of the journalists are you, from are here
1: in Who are you talking about? Are you talking about Daniel Coulon?
0: I think it was, that was him, yes. And there was also one of the local journalists, or one of the Irish journalists as well, that came down from Dublin. And, and they suggested, or the who, suggestion... Who, sorry,
1: are you talking about Senator Maloney?
0: I'm not too sure of the names, so I do apologise. Okay. Yeah. okay. Cool. But but they, their suggestion was that you had a lot of information. So where was, you know, where was that information gathered? That no, be-
1: you know, I'm, I, you know I'm, I'm quite a good, I was in my day quite a good operator. You yeah. speak to local people, you have local knowledge Um, and you, you know, if people say things to you, you listen. And small town,
0: here. yeah, small town, people yeah. talk. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, and at what point did you realize, and I don't want to speed forward too much, but obviously I don't want you to go into all the details. I'm sure you've been through it a million times, in But at what time, at point did you realize, they think I did this? What was, what
1: was that well, point I, for you? Well, what, 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 what started to occur was, I was reporting on it. and You know, I, I, in my day, I, w- I was a good reporter. Um, it became apparent to me, oh, people started to say, they're saying it's you. No. And when you when you say, say it, people, who
0: just the locals and the blow-ins,
1: um, I think there was a because I was writing for the it's now defunct the um, Sunday Tribune that uh, mm-hmm. Vincent Brown founded, and I was talking to the news editor there, Helen Callan, and she told me on a in a telephone call sometime in early January of nineteen ninety-seven. Do you know what the talk, the, the talk is? And I said, "No, tell me what the talk is." They're saying that you 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 murdered her. You were the murderer.
0: And how did you feel when you heard somebody say that to you? That you suddenly thought, "I'm in the spotlight for this. I'm being well, blamed on I this." Feel? I mean,
1: how did I feel? How yeah. did I respond to it? Maybe. Well, I uh, uh, initially I was tre- I, I treated it very lightly. I treated it very lightly not knowing what was subsequently going to be, um, I was going to be subjected to. Um, and on one occasion, I think I said to her, ah, sure, yeah. Oh, no, I think I asked her, who's, who's saying this? Who Who is saying this? Uh, and she didn't tell me who it was, but she said, it's being said, it's you.
0: Okay, so because it's a small town mentality again, so you get. Well, it's the talk yeah, of the town. Small, well, yeah. We're,
1: we're, now we're connecting between a small town mm. and Dublin newspapers and new, newspaper decks up in Dublin. And
0: when you were arrested uh, and brought to the on police the station. On the first occasion. Yeah, on the first occasion, and you were brought to. The,
1: the, I think which was. This the, is February 11th. the
0: 10th, February the 10th. Oh,
1: February the 10th, okay. Yeah. I was going to say 11th. Yeah,
0: yeah okay. okay. February the 10th, 1997, you were arrested at your on home. Monday,
1: on Monday morning, I will never, ever forget.
0: Okay, I mean, did they did they put you in handcuffs, or did they just did you willingly yeah, just? Yeah,
1: they did, they did. So on on that Monday morning, I was I went down. From I I spent the night in Jules's the prairie what we call the prairie cottage, and I yeah. went down the road about two hundred yards to what we called the studio house, which was Jules's painting studio, and I went to the uh, Monday morning around about nine, nine o'clock um, and I had a lot to do that week. I rem- remember exactly it was going to be a very busy week. And then I saw two guys walking the studio. The, my, my my office was in the back of the studio house and I saw two guys walking past the window. I didn't know their names. They turned out to be uh, a, a guy called Culligan and um, another officer. They knocked on the door, and came in. I said, "Come in And Culligan said to me, "Right." I was wearing Wellingtons at the time because I did a lot of agricultural work,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and he said, uh, "You can take those off now." And I said, "Why?" He said, "Well, where you're going, you won't need Wellingtons." And um, he uh, he he read out the what do we call it? The I think the Miranda rights. Mm-hmm caution and said, I'm placing you under arrest for the murder of Sophie Tosca and a the plantier. Then he took out a pair of handcuffs and with what seemed to me to be quite a lot of enjoyment handcuffed me. Um, I was put into the back of a car, a plain clothes sorry, a plain clothes car, yeah. a non guard, a stripy car. Yeah. And I said, because I had letters back here and I had stuff to do, I said, can I see, Jules, I've got a letter on the table that he's posting. So the driver who is Hogan, and now a guy who's long dead, um, drove up the lane about 200 yards into the prairie cottage. Uh, there were uh, quite a lot of guards and people there. And I showed Jules from the back of the car that I was in handcuffs. And the window was wound down. And there was a letter that had to go off some, and by the way, was
0: it. was was Jules surprised? I mean, had you discussed with Jules before you were arrested that you may be a suspect that this could oh, happen? I both, mean, was we, there an expectation we, we, this was going we, to happen? Well,
1: no, no we, we both... Uh, well, I'd certainly become aware of the fact that because there was a story in the papers just before the arrest that there were six suspects, uh, two couples and two single males. And I realised that that I, I, I suspected that Jules and myself were one of the couples that was being talked about. But
0: Okay, but uh, okay. so let, let's move back to the car. So they then took you to the police station, and on the way to the police right, station, so, yeah, so, you, you, so, you, you said uh, in your own testimony, you said that you were abused in the police car, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, they, yeah. and they threatened you, and they hit you.
1: Uh, no, I didn't say they hit me. I, I was in the back seat with Culligan, Culligan was pointing his finger very pointedly into my arm in a sort of very aggressive and quite painful way. He's obviously been practised at it. The driver of the car on the way, now we're going to Bandon, we're leaving Skull on the back road through Bantry, through Doris, and the driver of the car said, even if we don't pin this on you, uh, it doesn't matter because you're going to be found dead in a ditch with a bullet in the back of your head and I said to the driver Hogan, "I said that sounds quite threatening." He said, "Yeah, it won't be us that do it, though."
0: Now you know they have obviously denied uh, the lead detective. Oh, yeah. well, they, said they, they denied. They, they said they, any they, of that they to they
1: you. Would wouldn't they? They denied everything, wouldn't they?
0: Okay, but they so had to. you went to the police station. You were interviewed. Of course, they could keep you I, in the police station. So
1: we arrived. I, I arrived in Bandon. Uh, they stopped just before we arrived in Bandon and made phone calls through to the station, and then. When the car pulled up into Bandon, uh, there was a f- press photographer, Mike Brown, I believe, was there. And the back gates of the, um, the entrance into Bandon barrack were left open. And Mike Brown got a photograph of me being uh, shunted in, in handcuffs. To the barrack.
0: I saw that. This is the photograph, of course, that they produced in both documentaries. By the way, I think it was in the Netflix uh, right. And they, they yeah.
1: appeared, I think, first in the, the Examiner of the the, the 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 next day.
0: And from that point, you became the suspect or the main oh, well, suspect.
1: And, and and they let my identity out. Not that it would be that hard to to know my identity. Obviously, I'm you know I'm quite big and don't know like a lot of other people. My name was over the front pages, and from that point on, twenty-five. Well, for twenty-five,
0: 25 years, you became the main suspect in the murder.
1: Four and a half years ago, ish, uh, my life was okay. completely changed.
0: I mean, you were released without charge, um, was, and a file was, was sent to the DPP.
1: A uh, questioning. I was released without charge. I was told on the way back down in the car, one, I couldn't go back to the, the prairie. Uh, sorry, the studio house where I was living, 200 yards down the lane. Uh, two, there was a hanging mob wait a lynching mob waiting for me in the Skull. And three, Jules had reluctantly accepted that I was the murderer. Which which, which was a, com- which, you know, I mean, he, so I didn't Did know the, de- de-
0: was- Okay, so you, what you're saying is that obviously affected your relationship as well, as well, well as your no, life.
1: I, I didn't know, I didn't say that. I, But what happened was... Clearly, it was like a cataclysmic upheaval on our lives, and you know, ever since then, it's been, you know, it's been a, a real roller coaster.
0: Okay, well, just to clarify for people, of course, um, the DPP and the Minister of Justice at the time uh, denied that or would wouldn't actually they wouldn't charge well,
1: you. To, to be precise, they didn't I have the evidence. I think the thing about this is the precision of things. The Guards repeatedly put, tried to get the DPP to prosecute me. In 2001, I think it was 2001, maybe, James Hamilton, the DPP, asked Robert Sheehan, his officer, to carry out a thorough examination of the guardophile and the so-called evidence against me. And Robert Sheehan produced a 46-page very, very uh, legally critique, analytical Mm -hmm. um, appraisal of the of evidence that they were offering to support a charge, and he completely dismissed every point that they made. Why
0: do you think uh, Detective Superintendent Dermot Dwyer... At the time, who was the lead investigator? I the have to be
1: very careful when I talk about that. Oh,
0: yeah, no, no, I, I understand. But, but why do you think him and his team and the guard of Kana in Skull and in Bandon at the time mm. basically focused on you and nobody else at that point? They had ruled out many other suspects and many mm. other theories at the time as to what happened. I mean, everybody knows the other theories that were involved, which were suggested during the documentaries that there was a hit band sent from France and all those other theories that are mm-hmm. out there. But why? Why do you think they were all dismissed? Was it because on numerous occasions that you, according to Malachi Reed and according to other people, that you had admitted that you confessed to them that you had done it? Although you said it was done in some sort of dark sense or dark humour, or well, maybe so dark I think, sarcasm. I,
1: I, I think you have to go back to the antecedents of the accusation. And Dermot Dwyer, in an interview he did with, I think, Parry Macho, some organisation, said, we knew who it was from day one. And you have a case like, what what do we call it in law? You know, I went up to UCC in five of the best years of my life and studied three degrees of law. You have a result-oriented investigation where you've already decided, I'm going to put Niall Bolan in the frame, and no matter what other evidence might come up to show he's not, I'm going to ignore it. And it happened in the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four, and it was exactly the same with, in this case, only, I'm only one, you know. Okay, well... Do, I'm, I'm the West Court one, if you like, rather than the Guild of Four and well, the Birmingham
0: Six. Well, just for those who don't know the full story, I'll speed forward just a little bit. Obviously, you were arrested a second time, once again released without On charge. On
1: 27th of January, yep. 1998, my birthday, yeah.
0: And in September 22nd, 2000, Jules, uh, with whom you were... lived uh, was they, also they, arrested for well, a second they, time they, and questioned. Get, sorry, the... Uh, this is in September 22nd, 2000, Jules, who obviously was your partner, was also yes. arrested for a second time and second questioned time. about the murder.
1: They arrested her for the second time after the DPP had already said prior to that that uh, her first arrest was illegal and she should not be touched again. And they arrested her again.
0: When the news came out, in and I, I know this might be a little bit difficult for you, but when the news came out, of course, uh, that you... Um, were accused of assaulting Jules.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
0: and you were charged and prosecuted with that at yeah, the time. Yeah. You got a three-month suspended sentence. That yeah. didn't improve, I suppose, the general perception no. of you at the time. No. No, no. Can I ask you, do you consider yourself normally a violent person? No. I mean, as a as a child, would you have been in fights in school, or I mean, would you would you consider because like I, for example, that I can remember the last time I was in a physical fight with anybody, I was thirteen. The chap's name was Conor Malone, and it was down a lane in school. I can remember when it happened. So, do you consider yourself a physically violent person? Would you've been in fights throughout your life?
1: No, no, no.
0: Why why did you strike out at Jules?
1: Um, it was to do with uh, alcohol and abuse of alcohol. And it's to my eternal shame. And, um, you yeah. know...
0: You regret that part of your life.
1: Oh, Jesus Christ, I do. Uh, but it wasn't... Uh, anyway, it was to do with alcohol and um, it's mm-hmm. my shame and it's, you know... I, I, anyway.
0: Yeah, okay. All right, okay. Um, you then decided you'd take a libel action, a libel action against eight newspapers who linked mm-hmm. you to the murder. Now, I suppose the newspapers... Look, you're a journalist. Mm-hmm. Surely you should have known this is what journalists do. This is the story. The police are pinning it on me. The journalists are only going to follow the story. Surely he knew that was going to fail.
1: I don't know. I, it was something that I was advised to do by the late Con Murphy, God bless him, um, solicitor from Bandon. Um, and what I didn't know was the newspapers had been given all of the, the statements in the file prior to discovery, uh, and it was a bit, basically, it was, it was a bushwhack or an ambush. And, um, as you know, I won two cases against two newspapers. I lost the rest. I appealed uh, them and I lost on appeal. Look, it's, it's just something where, and I'm an innocent person who's been accused of a crime. I have nothing to do with And what you do in that situation, and I'm sure you would do it too, is you would do everything you could to try to establish your innocence.
0: Well, and and this is it, and I'm going to come to that in a minute in relation to France and what happened in France.
1: And and on that point, by the way, Maria Farrell was heavied up by um, guards and told she would, unless she came and gave false evidence, which she had been persuaded to, uh, under pressure to,
0: but she initially denied that. But she later admit- She later said that she had had pressure put on her by the guards.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. And if you you read her statement, I mean, Maria Farrell, I'm very very sorry for her because she was one of the many victims along the way of this case. And there've been many victims, apart from, actually, Sophie Toscan du Plantier, apart from Jules, myself, Maria Farrell, and. One of the things that's occurred to well, me... Well, I mean, well, well,
0: let me just go back to what Maria Farrell said. Now, she originally identified you because, of course, she was the key witness at the very mm. start of all this because mm. everything else was circumstantial. Mm. But the evidence that she gave where she placed you at Kilfada Bridge uh, was, of course, the evidence that drew the police to your suspicion in the first place. So,
1: yeah, but don't forget now... Because she,
0: she, didn't she identify you as wearing a long black coat? And that later then, of course, when the Guard of Forensic Unit went to the studio... And they couldn't find anything apart from what had been burnt out the back.
1: But did no, no. I... Hang on, hang on. Uh, now you mentioned the tale of the long black coat. Yeah, and this features in the the Netflix. Pe- of, um, the long black coat's very interesting because a lot of emphasis has been put on the long black coat, and it was suggested suggested in the Netflix documentary that I had that somebody was here and made seen and observed... This is, Ari- this is
0: Ariana Boriana. Bur- uh,
1: I think that's her name. Yeah, she's yes. a friend of Jules' yeah.
0: daughter who stayed at your house that Christmas.
1: A friend of Virginia, Jules' daughter, yeah.
0: So she said she had seen what seemed to be a coat uh, in a bucket steeping. And obviously the suggestion was at the well, time...
1: her first statement yeah. was that she'd seen some clothes in the bath. Yeah. And then when Netflix, I think, paid her money... She said that and Netflix, um, uh, they, they did something very, very strange, which uh, I'm, I'm still not sure about. They simulated a, a, what appeared to be a long black coat. In, in a book. Yeah. And then, and then Dermot Dwyer, uh, in their interview, suggests that I burnt that coat subsequently. The funny thing is, if you look at the film of The Christmas Day Swim, I'm wearing that very same dark black coat which I never got back. And if you look at the list of uh, items that were taken from me on the first arrest, number one, right at the top, is the long black coat.
0: So you believe the Gardaí Khan already had that coat, so there was no need for them to be looking for a long black coat. I I
1: know they did. Well, according according
0: to the forensic unit on the Netflix documentary, they were told, and part of their information, and part of their... I suppose the remit was to find the long black coat or to find well, the clothes did, that they
1: did, and they took it away so what well they said they found nothing
0: they said they found nothing but the fire out the back and with the bedspread that had been burned oh, no, the... no no
1: no i Ni- i I've, I've, you know I've got the forms of the things that were taken from me on the the first arrest, and number one right at the top of the list is a long black, mm-hmm. dark coat
0: okay, okay. In relation to what happened after that, of course, you you lost the the libel case. I was at at the point of the libel case and you lost the libel action against eight newspapers, which linked you to Sophie's murder. Uh,
1: No, I lost the libel action against six newspapers. Okay, To be precise.
0: Okay, well, at the the time they said it was eight. So obviously you're saying six and I'll take your word for it. Um, uh, you also, also threatened legal action against Maria Farrell if she did not withdraw the comments that she'd made about you in the media following the court case as well. You
1: refused. I don't think I ever did actually threaten legal action against her, particularly. I can't remember that. But in 2005, I was up, up 2005, I think it was, uh, I was, I received a phone call from Frank Bodmer saying he'd had a call from Maria Farrell who wanted to talk to him, and subsequently Maria Fowle withdrew all of the false statements and members of Angara Shirrkana at the time had made forced her or encouraged her to make. Here's,
0: here's the thing I'm thinking Ian, right? A lot of time had passed and, and in 2007, of course, you win an appeal in the High Court in Ireland regarding a libel action against the newspapers, and now you also lodge court papers suing the Irish Minister for Justice and the Garda Commissioner, essentially the Irish state.
1: And Hang on, two
0: thousand. This is two thousand seven. Th- okay, uh, t- t- this brings me to the point that I'm trying. I'm actually going to make. Go, go, go okay, the point I'm trying to make is so much went on, and everything that I see in relation to say, you know, going and suing the newspapers, then going and suing the Irish State, uh, you know, and uh, obviously you took court the court paper suing the Irish Minister for Justice and the Garda Commissioner for wrongful arrest, false right, imprisonment, that, conspiracy. That, that,
1: that wasn't until two thousand, and as I recall, two thousand and. Uh, 13, was it? No, 2007,
0: I think. but But anyway. All right. Okay. But the point I was going to make is, constantly the story was getting back into the news again. Did you not at any stage, you, claiming that you were an innocent man, not want this just to go away? I mean, and the easiest way to make it to go away would be to stop engaging with it. I mean, was it not a case that because you're constantly engaging in the story, you're drawing attention to yourself all the time?
1: No, not at all. I tell you what, Niall, if you were ever accused of a crime that you had nothing to do with, all you would do is fight to prove your innocence. And that's all I've done for, what, uh, 25 years now? Only a quarter of a century. And, yeah, you know, I mean, and and I'm still doing it. And today, by the way, I received some news through the media because I've written to Drew Harris and T-Shock. Minister for Justice, asking for a, a reinvestigation. I heard some news today which gladdened my sad heart that apparently Garda Shirkana are going to launch a complete comprehensive cold case review.
0: I, I did see that in the paper today. The guardian are reinvestigating uh, a file uh, on the unsolved murder of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier. It's actually in the yeah. paper today. OK, but okay. so let me go on. that. The French magistrate then ordered that the body be exhumed for forensic examination oh, right. to, in so 2008. The French, the
1: French magistrate, okay, so, well, I, I don't mean to cut across you, but um, so I actually was very happy and I wrote to the French magistrate saying I'd be very happy to speak to him, uh, Mr. Gar- Garçon. And the French, the Irish state actually refused to allow him to give me audience, in, in France they call it audience, uh, with him when he came over to investigate. So I was actually denied the opportunity to participate in the French prosecutorial process by the Irish state.
0: Okay. The French authorities in 2009 travelled to West Cork. And, and I'm wondering, by the way, in West Cork and school at the time, where you've lived all the time, by the way, in West Cork, I mean, what was the, I suppose, how were you treated by the locals? You know, in the intervening years, when almost everybody in the country had been watching this case, and every time this case is mentioned, your name come up as the lead suspect every single time. How what? did how did the locals in the town perceive you then, and how were you oh, treated? Right. Well,
1: okay. So, with the exception of a few of the he, I call them the they were in the he did it camp. I've had nothing but a hundred percent support from the very good people of West Cork.
0: And what what percentage? And I, and I, I what what percentage were in the he did it camp? Do you think?
1: Uh, Well, I'm not going to mention any names. No, I'd rather you didn't
0: mention names. (laughs) Uh, Yeah,
1: yeah, I know, because you might get involved in a a case. But there were a number of people who were um, gathered together and and a number of them made false statements. That doesn't matter. Um, But the majority of the people here have been absolutely brilliant, absolutely brilliant in their support.
0: So you believe the majority of the, the locals in the area and the majority of people who knew you, their yes. view of you didn't change. They, they no, believed actually, you were innocent. I had, a, I
1: had a lot of people coming up to me saying, you know, um, you know, fair play to you. I even had a very funny thing with some of the local lads and I found this very strange altogether, was like the fishermen and the farmers. They said, even if you did do it, Ian, you're grand altogether, which I found very strange. And I'm <laughs> saying, hang on a second. I didn't do it, but thank you very much anyway. Uh, By the way,
0: g- getting back to, you know, going back um, many years ago when you, and I think I asked you this question, but I don't think we got an answer to it. Wh- when you were confessing to doing it, I mean, this question uh, was hang raised.
1: Hang on, hang on. I refer you to the DPP's critique, the alleged confession. Okay,
0: well, when the alleged confessions happened to Mal- uh, when Malachi, when Ma- Malachi Reed,
1: Malachi, uh, Malachi Buig.
0: Yeah, and and, and many other, and and others as well that you had seemingly admitted to about
1: it. about three or four, I think. Can you most.
0: okay? But can you explain to me when, when you said this was these are kind of dark stories or it was dark humor or dark sarcasm
1: using irony and satire to compare, you know, to
0: so g- give me give me a context of that. Was it a case of you were kind of going, oh yeah, of course I did it, of course I did it, or it
1: was exactly as you've just said it. Yeah, of course I did it. Yeah, of course I did. Jokingly, what what, what, was it? Was that was that a bit irresponsible? Do
0: you think, in hindsight?
1: Yeah, very much so. Because somebody, a friend of mine said, "Ian, the one thing you've got to know about Irish people is they don't do irony or satire." But. That's my fault. I, you know.
0: Mm. You know. Okay, okay, okay. So, getting back to the French authorities, they travelled to West Cork. Uh, they wanted to see the crime scene, obviously, and meet the the, the local yeah. Irish investigators yeah. and the two guarded detectives. And as well.
1: I, al- I always offered my and I'd written to them and always offered my assistance if they wanted it, but they never came near me.
0: Okay and they then in 2010 they issued a European arrest warrant I think for you. it was
1: actually in 2007 wasn't it? Because no, in
0: 2010 Judge Judge oh, Gashon oh, oh, issued okay, a, a European arrest warrant for you. Nice. And when you when you knew there was an arrest warrant made for you, I mean at that point did you think I'm in big trouble now?
1: Well, I <laughs> was I in big trouble
0: then. Um, well, you were in big trouble anyway, see so me, your life <laughs> was in big trouble, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that was the first of three, a series of three European arrest warrants, which subsequently I did fight in the Irish courts. And on every occasion, uh, the Irish courts decided no.
0: And this was on the 23rd of April. The uh, the High Court in Ireland granted a bail pending a hearing uh, of the case to extradite you to France. And the High Court ruled on March 18th. Uh, of 2011, uh, in favour of the French authorities and, uh, and orders Ian Bailey to surrender to the European oh, arrest warrant.
1: Thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, so we went before Judge Peart uh, yeah. on the first occasion, and um, we went up to Dublin um, on, on, on many occasions, and he, eventually he handed down his judgment in the High Court. Judge Peart ordered my extradition to France. Now I said to Jules, Jules and myself were in the box, but I'd been studying law, and I knew that I I had an appeal against that decision to the Irish Supreme Court, which I took, and Frank Bodmer, bless him, took that case, and you won, and appealed it, and I think that occurred in two in in March, March the
0: first, two thousand twelve,
1: right? Yeah, and the Supreme Court came down um, wholeheartedly in my favour, and then so you know. That was, so the first arrest warrant was for the, my extradition as a, quote, suspect. Now, everybody knows in Ireland, because of the history between Britain and Ireland, the Irish will not extradite for questioning. You, you know that. That's going back mm-hmm. into history. So that was dispatched. But then the French progressed the, the case and made another application. And then that was rejected, and then they made the. F- oh, I know they they made the decision then to try me. Okay,
0: me but can, can I ask you again? I'm going to ask you the same question. You know, I mean, at that point when you had that, it ruled in your favor. Uh, that the the Supreme Court ruled in your favor that you wouldn't be extradited to France. Yeah, I mean. Why then continue? Because on March 30th, 2015, you lost a civil action case against the Irish state and the Garda Síochána. And why then try to stay in the news? And, and that, that asks two questions. I'm not
1: trying to stay in the no, news. No, no,
0: what I'm saying well, is. No, no,
1: I'm not, honestly. I'm not. I actually, I'm a, I, I want, just want to get on with my life. But anyway, go on.
0: Uh, but I mean, the, the point is, the first point you made to me there about 10 minutes ago, you said to me, when you're innocent, you know, you'll scream from the, the rooftops, basically. And you will, of course. Yeah, and, I, and I agree yeah, with you. Yeah. So why didn't you just go in? Why did not why not just go to France? Did you not think you'd get a oh, fair well, trial?
1: Well, one, one I knew that the French legal system is based on the, uh, what they call the Napoleon Bonaparte Civil Code, which basically is quite different from the code that we have, which we... Call I'm,
0: a- I'm aware of that, yes, yeah.
1: Yeah, where if you are accused, you are guilty, unless you can absolutely prove you're innocent.
0: So you didn't believe you'd get a fair trial?
1: Well, I, I knew I wouldn't get a fair trial.
0: Okay, so, so moving forward in time, as I said again, um, you obviously took a civil action against the state and the garda Síochána. corner.
1: So we're now up to 2014, I think.
0: 2015 obviously. at this stage.
1: Oh, Uh, sorry, was it, I thought it was 2014. No, March 30th,
0: 2015, you lost the civil action case.
1: All right, I think,
0: yeah. Okay, so, I I mean, I I am trying to point, what I am trying to point out is that literally this has gone on for 25 years or 24 and a half years. It hasn't just been every now and again. You've been constantly in and out of court, in and out of the news constantly all the time. And and I I get that. Now, the trial, of course, in France happened um, two years ago, the 27th of May. Uh, yeah. which were you were absent for, and in yeah. your absence, uh, you were found guilty of the murder of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier.
1: In a, in a trial which took three days on evidence which had been multiply rejected in Ireland, but yet was acceptable as somehow evidence in the French court.
0: And you were sentenced to 25 years in jail by the French court. Where, right. when you, where were you, by the way, when that sentence was handed down? Whereabouts exactly I were you? I was on
1: the prairie.
0: And... Who gave you the information and gave you the the result of that particular court well,
1: case? You you uh, you, you you'd, you'd have to be the blind, deaf, or dead, not to realize that the media it was on on it was big news. It was on radio, it was on television.
0: Yeah, and at that point, what were you thinking to yourself? Did you think you were going to end up going to jail?
1: I can't remember exactly what I was thinking at that particular point, but I knew that I'd been bonfired on a pyre of lies in Paris.
0: So you you believe that that trial was based on circumstantial evidence that you... Well,
1: look, it was based upon a a pile of of hearsay, uh, evidence which had been rejected him on multiple occasions, and was a, you know, I was conflagrated on a pyre, P-Y-R-E, of lies.
0: Okay, and then the French court, of course, issued another European arrest warrant for you uh, at and that I stage.
1: And the whole thing again. And you yeah. had to go
0: back to the high court again, who, uh, yeah. of course, said that you wouldn't. They ended all attempts to extract France. that was France. very,
1: very stressful, because I remember I waited. Cause, so the decision was handed down in May of the year. And I was... I, I, so I was waiting all the time. I knew I was going to be subjected to another European EAW arrest. And I was waiting, 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 and waiting. And it didn't come through, I think, until November, was it? Or even, like, just before Christmas of that year. October. October was it, yeah. 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 And I, I remember when I heard it was coming through. I, had a, I was in Bantry, and I had a phone call from Frank. And he told me that it was coming through. And I had a panic attack. And I'd never had one before. And I, it was weird. Um, and I started to judder and shiver, and my knees went to flutter, and I was like, and I had to sit down, and it was, I think, the strain and pressure of waiting so long for it to come, because I knew it was going to come. It was like a bullet that was very slow arriving. That's a a metaphor, obviously. And then I, so then I, I went up to Dublin. I volunteered myself to go up to Dublin to be just before Christmas, to be arrested, in effect, because I knew I was going to be, and I thought it's better to go up there and be arrested than be taken up there in a Garda car. And so I went up there, and I was arrested in the court by a very nice man actually, uh, um, Jim. He arrested me on three occasions. He was the extradition uh, arresting officer. Jim Kerwin, yeah, bless him. I think he might have retired now. (laughs) (laughs) And I was then bailed and I came back down and I had a very unsettled Christmas. That Christmas, it was pretty hellish Okay,
2: and and at that, that point... Then we,
0: yeah. Okay, so sorry for just rushing you a little bit no, no, in, no, no, no. in. But at that point, you would imagine, okay, so you've been found guilty in a French court. The Irish courts refused to extradite you. You think, okay, I'm safe because I'm not going to be extradited. That's, no, I will no, And, and, that, can, and that's a, that can't be overruled, safe. okay?
1: There ain't no place called safe, Nile. Okay, there but no, no, the point I'm
0: asking you is... Why then, when you would think to yourself, I'm never going to be able to prove my innocence because there's nothing more is going to happen now apart from that that's already happened in France, you know, we are got as far as we've got in Ireland. What? So why then decide to do or to get involved, well, at least in one documentary? Certainly you were involved in both as well, far as the, 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 the public are the, concerned.
1: Right. So, look, the, the gym doc started because when I began that civil action against the... Uh, the state, which I was never going to win, I was approached by uh, numerous parties. Uh, Sam and Jennifer, Sam, uh, Jennifer Ford, and Sam Bungie introduced themselves to me that first week. Um, Jim Sheridan came up to me in the. I, re, I remember it really well because it was lunchtime break and everybody knows Jim because he's a national treasure. And he came over and he started chatting. And. Another character whose name was Nick Foster, who's just brought out a book, but we'll leave that out. And they were all interested in the case. So I started talking to Jim. I'd already met a guy called um, Donald McIntyre, the intrepid. I know, expert, I know he's Donald, him. yes. yes yep. yeah. And he'd expressed an interest in it. And what I did was, in effect, I crossed the line. Yeah,
0: but would you not, Ian, at that point, would you not have said, guys... I've had enough of this. As you've just told me, all the way well, through no, this, hang that you're... On, hang well, no, well, hang, no, 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 hang on for a second. You've just told me your life had been ruined for 25 years. Yeah, yeah. And would you not have said, guys, I've had enough of this. I don't want any more of this. I want I want to try and quiet my life down a bit. The bit of life that I have left in me, uh, and I'm sure just like me, you you realise that you're probably two-thirds of the way through your life at this stage. (laughs) And and, and I I just want a quiet life. Why would I want to have fingers pointed at me again, be in a documentary and have the general public make up their mind about who they think is guilty and not guilty? Because I can tell you now, Ian, the talk around the offices of Ireland at the moment is, did Ian Bailey do it or not? Why would you want people thinking like that?
1: Well, don't, I don't know what, what about you saying. that The, the, the talk about the offices is the invade. Well, I don't know. Look, that, Well, just, that is um, the talk, isn't it? Isn't, isn't that what well, people yeah, watch? I don't know. You're, you're telling but, me that. But that's why I people
0: watch documentaries, do. isn't it? To be sitting at the end of it going, did he or didn't he? And, and that's what people are thinking. So why would you want to get involved?
1: Why would I want to get involved? Jim Sheridan approached me. I trusted Jim, I trusted Donald McIntyre, I trusted the podcasters as well and that trust has never been broken. Why wouldn't I ask yourself the question, why wouldn't an innocent person want to be involved in a process which might, might possibly lead to his exoneration? But you've
0: been doing that for 25 years and it hasn't led to your exoneration. I know, I know. By the way, did you get paid for either documentary?
1: No, I re- from the gym doc I received what were known as legitimate, reasonable legitimate expenses for photocopying materials.
0: Okay. Netflix, yeah. did you get any money from Netflix? No, absolutely not. Because you featured in quite a lot of it.
1: Not a penny.
0: Would All you- I
1: got from Netflix was Grief.
0: So what now for Ian Bailey? I mean, can, can I ask you a question? By the way, do you regret? Yeah, sure, you're can, right? Oh yeah, but hey, do you regret? Hey, hey,
1: hey Niall, you've been asking me questions
0: for an hour. Oh, geez, yeah, geez, and I appreciate geez, you standing the line to me. Geez, do geez. do you regret picking up the phone that day to call uh, at lunchtime on that particular day, going back to nineteen ninety-six, the twenty-third of December? Do you regret picking up the phone to, what, from the Cork Examiner from
1: Eddie Cassidy? One, what, 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 I never do retrospectives because you can't don't do retrospectives. I was here. I received a call, I was a correspondent, and I did my journalistic duty.
0: Knowing what you know now, you wouldn't answer the phone now, would
1: you? Oh, 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 do you know what? Of course I would.
0: <laughs> so you'd do it all again?
1: No. Look, I'm ai ju-
0: <laughs> I know you're a journalist. Yeah,
1: come on. You know, I, what I do do now is, I've learned, by the way, and people might be interested in this, the mobile phone now controls us all. What I had taken to doing of late is I accidentally left my mobile phone at home the other day, and it was one of those big news days when I knew people were going to get me. I was going to drive back to get it. I thought, feck it. Sorry, feck it. Uh, I won't. And I had a much better day from not having it, and now I turn it off uh, quite a bit of a time. Unless I know I'm going to receive a call from somebody like you.
2: And
0: in saying that now after everything that you've gone through, after the two documentaries have come out, and now, of course, the story is worldwide. It's not just Ireland. It's not just France. Mm-hmm. It's trending on Netflix. It probably trended on Sky, I imagine, too. Everybody's watched I, I, every I episode. Know. I don't know. I don't yeah, it's, it's all over social media. It's all over Twitter. It's everywhere. And everybody's in, as you call them earlier on, the team he team he did it and team he didn't do it. Yeah. I, how does that make Ian Bailey feel now that the world, and, and not just France and Ireland anymore but the I world the world is because pointing I, the finger.
1: I don't know because well who's pointing the finger, but I don't know because I'm not aware of that that thing. It doesn't feature in my, my thinking or consciousness.
0: Do you think you'll ever be because obviously you st- still to this day will say that you're an innocent man. Do Ooh, you oh, do you believe yeah, yeah. or do you believe you'll ever be completely vindicated?
1: Well, if my prayers are answered, yes.
0: And how do you think that will happen? Just finally, and then I'll, I'll let you well, go. Do you I, think I, they will? Do you think they will find out who did it?
1: I don't know if they will find out who did it, but I know that they will. They they know, by the way, the authorities in Ireland know I have nothing to do with it. I know that because I've heard that from uh, members of the Garda Khan who told me they know it wasn't me.
0: Well, we wouldn't be talking well, to you today if the guards didn't think you'd happen to do with us.
1: Say, say that again. Well, we wouldn't
0: be talking to you today. If the guards thought you had nothing to do with it, we wouldn't be talking to you today.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, but there's a difference between knowing and, and, and admitting the truth, isn't there? And the one thing is, and this is a quote from a famous movie, what, there's so many people have invested um, in the he did it case within the state, very powerful people, retired guards, uh, that it's very hard once you've dug yourself into a trench of accusation truth.
0: But isn't that like one of those conspiracy theories that you hear, you know, when I hear a guy who's from Nassau who said he seen aliens in 1947 on an operating table, and then I say to myself, OK, the guy seems credible, but surely everybody would have had to be been in on it, and somebody would have squealed, and, you know, somebody would have spilled the beans at some stage. It's easy to say there was guard- oh, well,
1: This is a journalist with the Daily Star, a highly esteemed journalist. He did an interview with a former head, cold case head, um, and the cold case, retired cold case head told John Kearans, and it's in the paper there about, oh, three Saturdays ago, that he investigated the retired head of the cold case, investigated the case absolutely from top to bottom, and concluded, one, I should have been dismissed as a suspect very early on in the case. Two, there was no Evidence against me, and three, there was a conspiracy to put me in the frame.
0: On that note, I will thank you very much indeed, Ian, for coming well, I'm on. Going to
1: and say to you, Gurumi and Mahagat.
0: Gurumi and Margaret,
1: And Iowa.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Ian Bailey, and I appreciate thank you taking much. the time to talk to us tonight. Good luck.
1: Thank you. Good luck. Well, there you go, Ian
0: Bailey who still to this day proclaims he's an innocent man and believes he will be vindicated completely at some point. And I'm sure you've all watched both documentaries and it's entirely up to you then to make up your own mind whether you believe everything that's been said by everybody, be it in the documentaries or indeed by Ian
1: Bailey. The multi-award winning Niall
0: Boylan podcast. Listen live on Facebook, YouTube and all the usual live stream services. To get in touch, just WhatsApp or text 085 100 2255. The Nile Boylan Podcast. They told me
2: to shut up. Available for download from all your usual platforms.